Hello, hello, and welcome to Hot Take Think Tank. I'm Kier. And I'm Liam. Today we'll be discussing what really took down Airbnb in New York City, why a certain group of people think betting could change the world, whether fabricating trauma for laughs has become more acceptable, and what to do with the racial roles that social justice culture has created. But first, Kier, I hear you have some good news. Yes, uh, the Writers Guild has ratified a new contract, and yeah. 99% of the voting writing Writers Guild members voted to ratify the contract. Wow. Which is incredible. <laughs> it must be a good contract, I guess. <laughs> it's a it's a really it's a great contract. Um, mm. a lot of what was won, um, the you know, studio executives uh, said was simply impossible that they <laughs> would never ever in a million years uh, be able to uh-huh. get this type of contract. <laughs> um, yeah, there's new staffing minimums for writers' rooms, uh, uh-huh. bigger cuts of streaming residuals, mm. wage increases, uh, better professional development opportunities for new writers. There's increased job security, uh, more timely payments, more data transparency, as well as AI restrictions that are designed to protect human labor. Yeah, I, that's that's a great list. I do actually, I, I heard one additional detail about the AI regulation that's in there, which I found pretty interesting. Um, mm-hmm. It's essentially that the studios are not allowed to use AI to write anything, uh, but it places no restrictions on the writer's ability to use AI to do their writing, which I thought was oh, interesting. that's interesting. <laughs> yeah, so absolutely. It's, like, it's, um, yeah, it's not like no AI will ever be used in the writing of anything for the studios it's like you have to trust the professionals who know how to write to use this new tool to write more or write better that makes a lot of sense to me because i feel like since uh Hmm. chat gpt came out and everything like there are all these videos on like how to get rich quick with chat gpt (laughs) and so all of these you know like there's a science fiction uh website that had to like shut down submissions because they were just filled with all of this total garbage mm-hmm. <laughs> written by ChatGPT. So yeah, there the quality control part will always require humans for sure. Totally. Yeah. Well, and I liked it too. I was a bit worried like just hearing how often AI was mentioned that it was sort of like a a luddite anti-technology thing, but this seems a lot more reasonable. It's like, yes, there's room for the new tech in the contract. It's just uh yeah, re- a reasonable use of the new tech, I think. Yeah, absolutely. That does seem to be the way to go instead of trying to fight it all together is trying to figure out how to incorporate it in a way that doesn't screw people over. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> well, good news. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, speaking of getting screwed over, uh, uh-huh. Liam, I'm wondering if you have ever had like a terrible Airbnb experience. Uh, yes, <laughs> I have. Uh, it was on my, uh, I did a road trip across Canada and, um, we, we did a few Airbnbs like right on the West coast on the Island and that, uh, that were all really nice. And I was like really trusting Airbnb at that point. It was like the first few times it was like my first two or three stays. I was like, this is amazing. Uh, and so it was in Revelstoke where my trust maybe was too high and I booked a place because it was really cheap without checking any reviews and it was like we slept on like a a piece of foam on top of uh like an unfinished floor like just plywood 
Oh, wow. And it was like, it was a house where every room was a separate Airbnb. Um, <laughs> and if I remember correctly, there was just one shower downstairs. Uh, and like no, no organized system around that shower. Just sort of like, uh, if you want to shower, uh, good luck. <laughs> uh, I don't know. There must have been maybe a dozen people staying in that house. Uh, all just sleeping on the floor. And uh, it was terrible. We slept very poorly. It, it just like security wise, it felt bad. And we did the rookie move of getting there after dark, which always just makes wherever you stay feel like a little, little spooky. <laughs> a little <laughs> more sinister. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So uh, the rest of the trip, we uh, checked the reviews before booking Airbnbs. <laughs> I mean, it sounds like you paid for a squat. That's what that sounds Pretty like. Much. Yeah, we we <laughs> maybe could have found an abandoned building and had a nicer night, <laughs> like breaking the window and crawling in there. It was, it was wild. It was very yeah, it was wow. it was squatting. That's really what it felt like. But like it wasn't even free. <laughs> Amazing! Wow. Yeah, I feel like um, the the stories have piled up over the years about Airbnb because. One of its main things, it really just is the inconsistency, mm-hmm. right? It's it's sort of like deregulated totally. the hotel experience in a lot of ways. So yeah, I think I don't you know. think you could operate a hotel where the floors weren't finished. No. I think that would you would get shut down if you did that. It's <laughs> probably against the probably. rules. Probably, yeah. But uh, yeah, Airbnb was the wild west, and and still sort of is <laughs> it still sort of is but maybe yeah. the uh, the tide is turning um because yeah. uh ann lowry just wrote an atlantic article uh entitled what really took down airbnb um and this is about how new york city has recently introduced new rules on short-term leases uh, which airbnb has referred to as a de facto ban and it has brought down the number of airbnb units in new york city from 39,000 to 405. So that's Mm -hmm. a significant increase for New York City's long-term rental stock. Um, Mm -hmm. And basically Airbnb owners have to register with the city before they can be paid. Um, And unless they reside in the same unit, uh, apartments have to be rented for a minimum of 30 days. Right. So it's a big change. Yeah, totally. Yeah, and um, Lowry went on to say that Airbnb came into being during the, the, this is a quote, by the way, Airbnb Mm. came into being during the last great American housing crisis, one very different from today's. Millions of Americans had become homeowners, putting little money down on properties they could not really afford. When those homeowners started missing mortgage payments, real estate values dropped and a global economic depression ensued. This housing cataclysm planted the seeds for the next. The real estate crash depressed the building of new housing, which is remarkably still taking place at a lower level than it was during the Bush years when there were 30 million fewer Americans. Yeah. That really surprised me that <laughs> the, the depression in construction seems to be ongoing this many years yes, after the yeah. Great Recession. Totally. It's, it's uh, I mean the housing crisis right it, it's uh it's a really poorly uh, the system's not working <laughs> in a lot of ways yeah <laughs> yeah exactly and uh yeah i don't know i thought it was an interesting article i i feel a bit like airbnb is like a very small part of the housing crisis problem 
Uh, yes. And it's sort of, I don't know. <laughs> and in some ways with like the current tide of like, uh, like the anti-tech vibes these days, <laughs> mm-hmm. it feels almost like, like a politically easy uh, piece of legislation to pass to try and address like a big issue maybe in a way that i i'm not sure if it'll be that effective but what do you you think (laughs) yeah well i think that that's um yeah lowry's kind of getting at that um Mm -hmm. in the sense that yes airbnb has been shown to increase rental and real estate prices um Mm -hmm. that is a real thing Um, And last year, the number of short-term Airbnb apartments in New York City outnumbered the available long-term rentals. Okay, Um, wait, wait, sorry. (laughs) Because I I had earlier in the article started, like, checking some numbers. mm -hmm. And I think that that is a phrase that is misleading. Uh, Mm. Can I give you my read on what what she's saying there and what I first thought she was saying? Okay, so... um, uh, okay, so I looked up, there were 39,000 Airbnbs in New York City, uh, and I looked up how many households there were in Airbnb, or in, in New York City, and uh, it's 3.2 million, so it's about 1% Airbnbs. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I'd already checked that, and I was like, how could that, how could that long-term rental thing possibly be true? Right, because it's not like there's only 1% long-term rentals. I was thinking. Um, so I think what that phrase is getting at, uh, there were more apartments available to rent on Airbnb in the city than there were available to rent long term. I think that is referring to like currently available to rent, not yes. places that are rented already, which to me, see, I don't know. It's like you'd sort of expect short term rentals to be easier to rent than long term rentals because long term rentals are off the market. Uh, mm. when they're rented you know what i mean mm-hmm. whereas like mm-hmm. an airbnb is always available to rent but if someone's in like a 12-month contract that they renew uh then that's not going to be available to rent mm-hmm. that's all mm-hmm. okay <laughs> I, just thought all right. that was, I thought that was important context <laughs> yeah it's like, fair enough yeah mm-hmm. um yeah well i think like because she is saying that um although Airbnb does have an effect, that Mm -hmm. the main issues are a dearth of housing stock, there's just not enough housing, and also an unaffordability crisis, and that those are like the main culprits, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Airbnb is not helping, but it is not the main culprit. Um, And I think it's interesting to think of like what type of business um, Airbnb is, right? And Lowry Mm -hmm. talks about that, how um, these sort of disruptor companies, uh, they launch mm-hmm. a startup that violates a law because you already in New York City were not supposed to be doing yeah. <laughs> rentals under 30 days, but it was not being enforced. Mm-hmm. Um, then because they're violating a law, they have an advantage over the competitors mm-hmm. because, as you said, a hotel wouldn't be able to <laughs> put you on foam in an unfinished room. Mm-hmm. Um And then once the company grows big enough, it can demand that politicians clarify the laws by which they mean legalize the business practices of that company. Um, So that's something that we've seen uh, happen in in various industries at this time. Um, So I just I did feel like the the article's title was like a little bit 
clickbaity, you know, because it was saying, oh, totally. oh, the government didn't take down Airbnb, the housing crisis did. Yeah. Well, no, the, <laughs> the housing crisis <laughs> caused the government to regulate Airbnb. Totally. Right? Uh, yeah, it was not the housing market. It was, it's, it was the government <laughs> trying to fix the housing market via regulation. That's a government thing. <laughs> yeah. And like a housing market could, in theory, take down Airbnb, right, if somehow the pricing that the market set wasn't viable to do Airbnbs in. Mm-hmm. But that's not what happened. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I just, I felt like because of the title I was waiting, I was like, what did take down Airbnb? What will it be? Yeah. What's the big reveal? And then it was <laughs> exactly what I thought it was going to be. <laughs> totally, yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, Lowry says near the end that in an utterly different housing market, Airbnb could have been a good idea, but not in this one. Um, and I do think that, you know, the business model is an awful fit given the compounding pressures right now on the housing market. Mm. Um, and although it's not the sole cause, it's certainly (laughs) not helping. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, it's probably fair. It's a, it's a. Yeah, I, I wouldn't. I would also not be too surprised if it varies city to city. Like some cities, but Airbnb's benefits uh, outweigh the other ones, but uh, not New York really? City. Really? <laughs> how, how do you think that could be in another place? Um, like a city that has plentiful housing stock and oh, okay, a, so nowhere in Canada <laughs> industry. <laughs> okay, okay. <laughs> or I don't know, or or like um, uh, like there are some places that have little going on other than tourism. Uh, that I think are are mostly supported through things like Airbnb. Like, it does allow some small towns to have tourism that kind of couldn't have any before. Hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. For, like, um, you know, a place that's not big enough to get any chain to set up a hotel there. Uh, That sort of thing. I I think it's possible for Airbnb (laughs) to be nice. (laughs) Well, and there is one other way that Airbnb, in theory, could be positive. Um... (laughs) Because, uh, like the, I I do think the core problem with the housing market is like a is supply constraints, right? Like that, uh, there's just way more demand for housing than there are houses, uh, mm. and so that makes the price for houses go really high. Uh, and like you said, like there's still a depressed market in building new houses in building new houses. Um, so like it seems to me like at some point a lot of money needs to be invested in houses like in building new new places and that being able to make money from those units as airbnbs could help incentivize investors to build but then (laughs) but then you're you haven't solved the problem like if you have all these local renters low-income renters Mm -hmm. that can't find a place then how does that end up like solving the problem that we have in the first place, which is that people can't find places to rent. Well, it's it's just um, <laughs> if it, it, Airbnb could, I think, be a part of the like broad pitch to investors to build a ton more housing, and a ton more housing could bring prices down across the board because demand and supply would be more in line with each other. I don't know. I guess I feel I skeptical <laughs> of that because, like, yeah. I knew you would. (laughs) Well, like, and why would, why hasn't that happened yet? If that were to happen, like, because Airbnb has been around for 
quite a while yeah, at this point. No, I mean, I think it could be about as big a part of the solution as it is currently part of the problem. Okay, okay. <laughs> like not, not like a huge thing. I, I think that there's a lot of things that drive up the, like the cost of building new housing, um, chief among them maybe, like zoning laws, that sort of mm. thing, that like make it so you, it's like a very long process and you might not ever get there if you want to build like dense housing. Uh, mm -hmm. in a neighborhood even if you like have acquired the land that you'd like that housing to go on yeah but, for uh, sure yeah i don't know it's yeah <laughs> not like uh, uh oh yeah obviously airbnb isn't going to save the housing market i just think it's uh <laughs> I don't, i'm not entirely convinced it's like getting rid of it is like long term a, a boon to the housing market uh but i agree mm -hmm. like the short-term pain of adding some more units about 1% more units to the market, uh, probably for the best. Mm -hmm. you know, I, I guess I hope that one day the housing market can be uh, like good enough that they can allow it back. <laughs> Wouldn't that <laughs> be nice to have a housing market so uh, like well run that uh, it can have Airbnb and it doesn't cause problems? <laughs> yeah, it doesn't. Yeah, absolutely. Because it, it has caused so much tension, you know, between... Totally. Um, between different segments of the population in so many cities. And that's yeah. um, interesting. I mean, I know in Canada that like uh, Canada basically like housing wasn't available as a commodity for a long time. And it was just through mm. like a series of laws that like it became a, an attractive right. investment. Yeah, like a speculation exactly kind of thing yeah. yeah yeah so i think my like aspirations are are yeah <laughs> more uh more removing housing as as a commodity uh because mm. it is a, a public good and i think there are better ways to provide public goods than relying on the market to <laughs> you know kind of figure it out um but yeah, that's that's a definitely a, a long term <laughs> hope. So <laughs> totally, yeah, and yeah, I I don't think either of us are uh, have any total solution here. <laughs> no, but it doesn't sound like either of us are fully convinced that uh, getting rid of Airbnb is a uh, a big move. Although probably mm -hmm. it'll help some people. Yeah, I yeah. Do, what what do you think of like the argument that it might also hurt some people? Um, not so much the ones who buy several apartments and turn them into like the cookie cutter Airbnbs, but mm -hmm. like the people who were just marginally able to get a mortgage and yeah, totally. meet those mortgage payments through renting on Airbnb. Well, my understanding in Canada is like the idea of like the mom and pop landlords is mm. largely false. It's a very tiny yeah, percentage totally. of it's landlords. Very like professionalized. It's uh exactly yeah. <laughs> yes at this point we have large uh corporations that own thousands and thousands and thousands of houses that they hmm. rent out um Interesting. yes and they're also like you can you can invest right and own yeah. whatever percentage of, of yeah yeah totally. exactly exactly so i think that you know largely the idea that of course there are there are landlords that you know they're just yeah. renting out um but that that's the thing actually is that these provisions allow you to rent out a room in your primary domicile so right but for a minimum of 30 days i think um i think that that's an exception like like if it's in your own domicile oh, okay. it can be for less than 30 days um interesting that's how i was reading that yeah. Yeah. Cool. Unless they oh, reside yeah. in the same unit, <laughs> apartments have to be rented for a minimum of thirty days. So I think there is oh, yeah. actually a little bit of protection okay, cool. for so those, those people. Will be fine. 
Yeah, I think those people <laughs> <But> will be fine. <laughs> that totally puts the lie to the idea that that's a big thing, though. If there's only 400 res- registered Airbnbs after the regulation, that means right. the other 38,500 were, uh, yeah, not that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Or they didn't want to do the paperwork or they haven't yet or various yeah, things. But, but if yeah, it was like if yeah. you were on the edge and you wouldn't make your mortgage payments, you probably would have done the paperwork. You would do the paperwork. Right, yeah. right, right. Yeah. <laughs> so I think that's a good point that that number kind of points to the idea that, yeah, the, the there are very few um, kind of very small, small businesses. Yeah. <laughs> that well, and that's sort of like, like the romantic part of Airbnb as a business would be that it's like, you know, it doesn't hurt the housing market. It helps by, you know, letting people who couldn't afford to buy housing buy it. But yeah. no, four, 400 people in the city, maybe. <laughs> so good, good for them. But uh, yes. yeah, probably not, not worth keeping the whole thing around for. Exactly. Yeah. If, if 100,000 people can now find housing in New York City, then it yeah. might be worth it. <laughs> um, so Liam, do you think we'll hmm. see similar rules in Canadian cities that drastically re- reduce the number well, of Airbnbs? I was wondering if you'd ask something like that because uh, <laughs> Vancouver pretty much has this already. Oh, interesting. Uh, yeah. We've never had uh, Airbnbs in the way that a city like New York had um, we've always had basically the same thing of uh, you can only rent out uh, if it's your primary residence. And um, and I think there's like a maximum number of days a year you can do it, too. So even if it is your mm. primary residence, it can't be year long. And uh, I think most buildings in Vancouver, the ones that are like part of Strata's uh, or Homeowner Association, I think is what they call it in the States, mm-hmm. uh, they almost all have uh, rules against Airbnb. Uh, or short-term rentals so yeah (laughs) yeah i I think um i wouldn't be surprised if this spreads though to any city that doesn't have it and is having a housing crisis sort of Mm -hmm. like i like i said at the top i think it's like very politically palatable and it's a huge crisis that everyone wants people you know their politicians just to do something about right so yeah uh, absolutely this seems yeah like it might go all over the place (laughs) Absolutely. Well, and I think that that's like one of the really sad realities of like the situation in Canada is that you Mm. have, you know, many, many, many members of older generations whose entire like wealth and retirement savings are like contingent on the property that they own. Right. And yet at the same time, if we want the younger generations to be able to ever be property owners, the prices need to come down. So you have like this real material tension between two groups that have opposing interests and the politicians are drawn from one of those groups much more so than the other (laughs) so it's hard you know it's hard to picture totally a significant change so if they can say you know we're tackling airbnb (laughs) you know um it can sound like they're doing something for housing and they are but they're it's a lot on the margins exactly yeah it's a much smaller move than like what's available to them if they really wanted to uh, change the housing market in canada yeah yeah totally and it it doesn't seem like there's much well i I don't know actually it feels like there's been a bit of a shift lately where like i don't know the what the graph would look like but i feel like the words housing crisis have gotten a lot more common uh Mm -hmm. sort of like through all, all the political parties uh so maybe something big will happen, but it's true. It would be very hard for politicians to justify anything that would like actually like drop the 
house prices dramatically because yeah. uh, that would make so many people mad. <laughs> and anything short of that is not going to do that much to shift like totally. who can buy houses, right? Like that's Yeah, it's all that's... it's all along the margins other than that. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. That that's getting to the crux of it and that really is like, you know, which which group do you stand behind and they're both you know, very, very large and, um, yeah. Yeah. And, and have like significant, like material reasons to be on the side that they're on. Yeah, totally. I, I was, I, that's, this is making me, I want to look it up sometime, like how big those various cohorts are. I'm not sure like what the renter to homeowner ratio is, uh, anywhere really. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, maybe that'll be a future quiz. Not this episode though. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds good. Cool. All right, well, maybe mm-hmm. we'll move to the next article then, mm-hmm. uh, entitled uh, The Wager That Betting Can Change the World. Uh, it's an article by Kevin Roos, r- published in the New York Times, about a conference he attended about prediction markets. Uh, the conference itself sounds pretty wild. He described it as part math olympiad and part burning man. Uh, and the idea that has all these people very excited is that prediction markets can, they say, Help find good information and weed out bad information, which is a problem that lots of people worry about these days. Mm-hmm. Uh, the markets let you bet on anything, like will Elon Musk and Mark Zuckerberg have a physical fight in 2023? <laughs> uh, will Ukraine regain control of Crimea? Mm-hmm. Uh, and it lets users uh, gain reputation based on how often they get things right. Uh, I didn't get the impression that Kevin came away like convinced. Uh, by these people (laughs) it Mm. was almost it felt almost like an anthropological kind of article (laughs) but uh i thought maybe i'd start by laying out how prediction markets work uh just for context yeah that sounds great this was a really new idea to me before reading this article the idea (laughs) that there are sites where you can just bet on literally any event that can be boiled down into a simple (laughs) like it does happen or it doesn't happen Totally. Yeah. Whereas I'm, I have known about betting markets for a good long while, and I like them a lot. When you, when I saw you post this, art, send this article, I was like, that one's going on the list. <laughs> I love this stuff. <laughs> awesome. Tell us okay. about it. Okay. So, uh, like the name suggests, a, a prediction market is a market. So there's buying and selling, uh, and what's being sold is ownership of these uh, weird little contracts, uh, and the contract basically has like three points. Uh, it says this contract will either pay out $1 or $0. Uh, whether it pays out or not will be determined by, say, who wins an election or whatever it is you're betting on. And uh, whoever owns this contract, uh, you know, at the date that the outcome can be determined, gets the payment. So that is what's actually being traded on these markets, is like a contract that says this is worth $1 if you're right. <laughs> Uh, and so ha- what happens then is uh, it's a market with buyers and sellers uh, and uh, you know there's incentive say you think there's a 50% chance of uh, of the contract paying out right the election is going to go to the person you think will win uh, you got a 50% chance at this $1 uh, that means if someone is uh, willing to sell you a contract for 49 cents you should buy it because you think it's worth more than that, right? You think on mm-hmm. average it's going to pay 50 cents. Uh, and in the other direction, 
you would sell your contract for uh, 49 cents. No, wait. <laughs> Sorry, I got confused there. Uh, it's like if you think it's 50%, then you're willing to pay anything less than 50 cents and you're willing to sell for anything more than 50 cents because you think that buyer is like overvaluing the likelihood that it's going to happen. Right. Yeah. So the idea, what I think is cool about them, I guess, or the idea of them is that uh, this like pricing mechanism, uh, overall, you get to observe like what is the price that this contract is going for. Um, mm. And that sort of implies what the average dollar invested in the market believes uh, the odds are, right? If everyone was 100% sure that the thing was going to happen, uh, the price would go all the way up to $1 because right. uh, that's cause it's going to happen. <laughs> Whereas if it uh, is not going to happen, uh, no one will be willing to pay anything for the contract because it's not going to happen. And, uh, yeah, so in, in theory, you can make money off of these markets uh, by knowing more than other people know. Uh, mm-hmm. and Or by, like, working harder to determine, like, the, what the, the true price should be. So that's what a prediction market is. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. <laughs> I think so. <laughs> Have you ever participated in one? Uh, no, actually. Um, <laughs> I might. I'm not... I'm not opposed to gambling, uh, mm-hmm. but I mostly I mostly watch them because I think they, well, like like it goes into in the article, the the <laughs> I don't agree with everything that these people at this conference uh, say. I think they overstate a lot of it, but I do think it's an interesting sort of counterbalance to like punditry, where. Mm-hmm. You know, I like I probably check the betting markets most before an election comes comes out because <laughs> mm-hmm. I, I am interested in like the odds that one person will win or another and um the betting markets have sort of a different incentive structure than like political punditry where uh a pundit might you know they might harbor some biases or something right uh that make them uh overstate the odds of something uh mm-hmm. Whereas on in the market, there's no uh, incentive to, like the incentive is to be correct, <laughs> uh, right. a lot in a lot more pure way than um, than you know the talking heads on TV or podcasters, for instance. <laughs> yeah, well, it's sort of like putting yeah. your money where your mouth is, right? Like totally. in the most real sense <laughs> of that. Yeah, it's like oh, you think that the prediction. You know, you think that the polls are all wrong and that, you know, Biden is a shoe in for re-election or whatever. It's like if you are really convinced of that, you could make a lot of money by putting all your life savings <laughs> into the prediction market. Because, uh, right. And then if you're right, uh, you'll be richer. <laughs> mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, but you most people, I don't know, most people, probably us included, talk with a lot more confidence than is deserved and if we get like asked to make a wager on something uh we suddenly start reeling back our certainty i think (laughs) (laughs) that's true i guess i had a couple questions about this like sure one is like when when the article talks about like how these people think that this type of betting can change the world like what are they picturing like how exactly (laughs) is it about it like influencing public policy or is it about like 
figuring out like who is the most trustworthy or like what's the mechanism yeah. there? I am not so sure. <laughs> <laughs> I it kind of gets the vibes of like people who know statistics and did shrooms and <laughs> it all fit together in their brain. <laughs> We've got it figured out, <laughs> man, but like can't actually tell you how okay okay <laughs> yeah no i it's like they were saying wait there was a little section that i put a bunch of notes on hmm. uh because okay yeah lots of silliness okay yeah it says like businesses would track prediction markets to figure out which products to build or which competitors to worry about and my thought is like we have a stock market already <laughs> right <laughs> uh governments would lean on prediction markets not polls or lobbyists to figure out which policies to pursue and I'm thinking, See, like, we have elections. <laughs> yes. That line struck me as so interesting because my first uh -huh. thought was like, oh, that's amazing. Like, lobbyists, you know, is, is a very yeah. strange kind of undertaking that can mm -hmm. affect things that kind of go against public good. But at the mm -hmm. same time, like, would lobbyists not figure out and other interests with mm. large budgets not figure out how to influence these betting yeah. markets I right mean, like markets can definitely be manipulated like there's exactly. lo lots of laws about that for actual markets <laughs> right like what uh, would yeah. kind of safeguard these markets so that they're this pure source <laughs> of information as opposed to all of these other you know ways that we can yeah learn things and make decisions totally no it's like most like all of the the markets i, I think i could confidently say all of the markets are at some point underpinned by like a real economy good of some sort that's sort mm -hmm. of what makes them uh makes it worth people making them efficient is that right like the market for used cars or something has like buyers and sellers and they negotiate over prices and that's how the prices get set Mm -hmm. But at the end of the day, there's a car getting traded. <laughs> the idea right. that like anyone would invest significant money in these markets for, yeah, just for, uh, I don't know, like like that. It, it wasn't it wasn't at all clear to me like why, you know, who's the person who's like gonna spend forty hours a week doing spreadsheets to make money on these markets. Uh, and then there's also the glaring issue that I feel like was not addressed enough that uh, it's currently all fake money uh, right? A, or points, uh, you could call them, <laughs> which I think really skews, um, skews everything way, way more just because it's like you're no longer even putting your money where your mouth is. You're putting meaningless internet points where your mouth is <laughs> you know what i mean <laughs> well that really undercuts the argument that they're making that like these bets are you know they, they kind of have this built-in accountability because people totally. are putting real money but they're not yeah. so no i mean there are betting markets in the world mostly mm -hmm. in areas that already have betting like there's sports betting markets these days instead of like having a bookie who determines the odds for everything usually odds get determined by a market instead Mm -hmm. um but there's no yeah there's not like a there's people like betting on sports because they like watching sports and they want to you know heighten the experience or whatever <laughs> uh but yeah. why you why you'd bet on just random like policy decisions <laughs> i don't know <laughs> yeah it's, and uh, yeah, yeah that that 
kind of reminds me of my other question, which is that mm. like, if does someone's ability to predict outcomes mm-hmm. actually speak to their intelligence or their capability? Right. You know what I mean? Because it's oh, like totally. it it is it could certainly be considered a skill, but does does that actually make that person, yeah, more trustworthy that that person yeah. should be listened to, etc. because Totally. I think that, you know, when it comes to researchers or journalists or whomever, you know, they're working with like what we actually have and what we know and and Mm -hmm. what we have studies on. Um, And so for me, like I, I don't find someone who accurately predicts things like inherently more trustworthy than someone who is uh, accountable to telling us when they were wrong about something, you know? And I think really smart and capable people are wrong about things. And that's just part of the process. That's part of being a human. And, and that's, that's the nature of the future, right? (laughs) Yeah. Oh, totally. I I did find like a weird focus in this article because what I like about a betting market is that it's like the sum of hopefully a huge number of uh like individuals all making bets and like a like a wisdom of the crowds sort of thing but uh this article did keep coming back to like um like that some people can like gain influence and be like look at how many predictions i've gotten right you should trust me on this new thing which Mm -hmm. to me is i don't i don't find that particularly interesting um i know there is there's like this cohort that um uh where they are like competitive forecasters which I think is is pretty cool, but like it's total nerd stuff. Like just they're really good at spreadsheets and like finding finding like um, finding data sets that are like reasonable analogies for the current situation. Um, uh, and it is it's definitely a skill. Like some people are much better at coming up with models that forecast the future than others. But um, I don't know. Yeah, I I think I'd be be with you. Like I think that those people have their place and it's, and it's probably an important place but it, i don't think it's necessarily uh every place <laughs> I, I think that there's yeah. lots of you know like are they also good like orators to win elections probably not <laughs> yeah <laughs> or whatever yeah it might be. exactly are they policy wonks like it's yeah it's yeah. it's an interesting skill it's a particular skill you know but mm-hmm. how does it translate and i i understand like after the incredible difference between the polling in the Trump versus Mm -hmm. Clinton election versus the outcome that there was sort of like this whole reckoning around (laughs) the idea of polling and like, what is it even worth if it could be so wrong, you know, and you do have to wonder how like different incentives came in, like not even necessarily consciously like that there was a conspiracy to, um, say that Clinton was going to win, but just that so many people in the media industry were convinced that that would be the outcome, totally. that that's what they, that's what they told everybody. Right. And yeah. Yeah. And I yeah. could like seeing that happen. You do, I, I guess I wonder how much this conference, like you could like uh, go back in time and see that, that this conference comes from that specific event because it's true. Like on the eve of that election, there were places that said, Trump had like a 1% chance, right? That happened. <laughs> exactly. I, I did notice one election forecaster who 
who I follow and am a fan of, um, Nate Silver, apparently did talk at this conference. <laughs> oh, that's and, interesting. Yeah, and he was one of the people who gave Trump's, Trump the highest odds, um, I think around 30% the night before the election, which is uh, interesting. <laughs> it, he was sort of an outlier and people thought that it was way too high, but uh, that ended up being what happened. Um well, yeah. that's what I found intriguing mm. about the article is like if it is shown over time that these markets do right. more often than, say, public polling, mm -hmm. you know, produce accurate results or like point in the direction of the outcome. Um, that's really interesting. But again, like yeah. the idea that <laughs> that this betting market should play some large role in, in public policy or <laughs> in totally. yeah. you know, government legislation, well, <laughs> that's a huge leap beyond that, right? I do feel like there is also this like undercurrent in the article about like this somehow solving like misinformation. Yeah. Uh, which seems wild to me because it's like the idea that anyone who's spreading misinformation would would participate in this sort of thing <laughs> right i don't know i don't think like QAnon people are like i believe this and i want to bet money on it like i don't <laughs> think i don't think that uh is how that conversation would go uh, right but i mean i don't know i guess i think it would be cool if these betting markets were made to be more legalized in a reasonable fashion just so we could like see how they do that could be mm -hmm. cool. <laughs> I mean, it's, I think that perhaps for things outside of political elections, because I hmm. think the idea of like, yeah, being able to bet on political elections, like I think we just have hmm. to be careful about introducing incentives, right? That could yeah. lead to like coercion or sure. yeah, just like <laughs> introduce sort of corrupt practices into people's voting habits. Yes. And that, another one they mentioned in the article is um, bets on when people will die because they don't want to incentivize assassinations, which is, I'm glad exactly. they thought of that. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's true. Good thinking. <laughs> yes, I think yeah. that's what you got to be cautious around is like, yeah, whether you end up incentivizing behaviors by accident totally. or on purpose. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, no, I oh. thought I, it was another one of those articles where I'm not, like, convinced uh, that this is going to change the world or anything. I, but I, d I do think it's interesting stuff to think about. Absolutely. Yeah, I agree for sure. Well, Liam, I have a question for you. Oh, yeah? I do. Uh, when you go to a comedy show, do you mm -hmm. expect the comedian to more or less be telling the truth? interesting um i would go with less probably <laughs> mm -hmm. i i i think that um i mean when i go to a comedy show it's usually an improv show because that's my favorite show in the city ah, okay they're I should all have making said it up all the time <laughs> <laughs> but even even with my stand-up i think i care most about if it's really funny or not and mm -hmm. less about um, if it's true or not, but that might also have to do with the kind of comedy I like. Like I'm, we're, we'll get into it a bit, I think, <laughs> but I, I don't particularly go in for, um, comedians, uh, making 
like the sort of like personal story make you tear up kind of comedy uh isn't my brand of comedy i don't mind that stuff just not as comedy <laughs> yeah i like yeah, my comedy to, being yeah, funny totally. and my inspiration to be inspiring <laughs> and uh never <laughs> the twain shall meet <laughs> never the twain shall meet fair enough yeah because there there is a lot of sort of more confessional comedy a lot more like memoir style comedy happening totally yeah i every so often mm. like I, I i like watching a comedy special but a lot of the time i will put one on and turn it off because i'm like oh this person's not really telling jokes. That's not what yeah. I was looking for. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Comedy specials don't necessarily have to be that much about making you laugh anymore. <laughs> no, it's it's like, like comedy special just means like there's a person on a stage with a microphone talking for an hour. That's all yeah. the comedy special is. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Mm. Um, yeah. So uh, there was an article written by Kat Rosenfield uh, that was originally on Unheard and republished by the Free Press that was called The Lies of Trauma Merchants. Mm-hmm. And uh, it spoke about the recent um, Hassan Minhaj situation and then sort of contextualized and told a larger story uh, beyond that. But I thought I'd start out by uh, Mm. outlining the Hassan Minhaj situation for anyone who uh, needs that. Mm. Um, So there was a recent New Yorker article by Claire Malone that exposed how Hassan Minhaj has fabricated a number of hate crimes and racist incidents that has ser- have served as the bedrock for his comedic career. And Malone offered three main examples. The first one was that Minhaj claimed that an undercover working with the FBI infiltrated his mosque when he was a teenager and called the cops on him. And he even showed headlines and a picture of a specific undercover agent on screen at his shows. Um, and... This undercover was actually in prison at the time that he was supposedly infiltrating Minhaj's mosque, and he had never worked in that part of California. So that just did not happen. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, the second one was that Minhaj claimed that he'd been mailed an envelope of white powder that had spilled onto his daughter and that he'd had to bring her to the hospital. None of that happened. Just straight up. None of it. Um And the third one was that he claimed that he had been rejected on the doorstep of a girl that he'd asked to prom and that he had to watch a white boy tie a corsage around her wrist. Um, This also didn't happen. Uh, She had turned him down days earlier, um, but Minhaj actually used a blurred out picture of this real woman at his shows. Um, and her family has actually faced years of harassment as a result. Um, and the last one was that during his shows, he would show a bunch of just horrific, awful, violent tweets about him or mm. that had been sent to him behind him on screen. And those were fake. He either wrote or paid someone else <laughs> to write pretend hate tweets that were displayed at his show. So we all know that comedians do exaggerate and fabricate incidents for comedic effects, but for a lot of people, this felt different because Mm -hmm. Minhaj was creating these slideshows of pictures and documents and headlines and screenshots that would reasonably be interpreted by his audience as proof, right, of what what Mm -hmm. had happened and that these things had happened. 
Um, the other thing that people point out is that his fabrications were not crafted to enhance a joke, right? To to right. go totally absurd and and create an uh, an excellent laugh. His fabrications were more about. Um, creating a narrative about how oppressed he was as a brown Muslim American, mm. and even that his comedy was putting him and his family's life on the line, right, with this envelope of powder. Mm-hmm. Um, and what's sad about that, obviously, is that it cast doubt on other people's real experiences with state violence, vigilante uh, violence, yeah. which are real things. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's it's an interesting case because I think, you know, when I first saw the headline, I was like, oh, like, he's a comedian. We know that comedians, you know, have a hmm. loose relationship with the uh-huh. truth. But <laughs> because of, you know, this sort of performance memoir style of comedy that he was doing, um, I think that that sort of leaves more room for criticism and especially because you know when he was asked about these incidents in interviews uh he Mm, spoke mm -hmm. about them as if they were factual you know he wrote essays about them being factual so there really was nothing that would cause you to know that those stories were fabricated aside from this investigative article in the new yorker that just came out yeah that is interesting isn't it (laughs) I do. Yeah. I, it does make me think. I remember watching a Bo Burnham special a few years ago, um, not the most recent one, but one uh, from earlier. And he mm-hmm. had a few jokes in it about um, how his his parents didn't support his comedy career, right? And mm. they were they were just jokes that he told on stage. And then I remember seeing someone ask him afterwards, like, "Huh? So your parents really don't like your comedy?" And he immediately was just like, "No, I just say that because it's funnier that way." There you go. <laughs> to, like, pretend my dad rejected me. That's uh, it's a funny bit, but uh, my parents are really supportive, right? <laughs> it's like yeah. you definitely you, ca- you definitely can lie on stage and then uh, not lie elsewhere. <laughs> Off stage, exactly yeah. right. So that kind of it does speak to what Minhaj was doing was a bit different, right? Than mm-hmm. yeah, like like saying things on stage and then being like, oh, that was a joke. When you get off stage, he he wasn't he wasn't yeah. doing that with these stories, well, you know. And it, it would be hard to do that with the stories because, like the article goes into, they're not really jokes. No, they're not right. jokes. It's, they're you horrifying. Can't be like, I said that because it's funny. Like it's <laughs> you said that for a more complicated reason than it was funny. <laughs> Exactly. Well, Mm. and that's what's interesting is like Minhaj defended himself by saying that his stories reflected an emotional truth, if not factual reality. And I really want to talk about that for a second. (laughs) First of all, I think it's really hilarious to say emotionally, I felt as if my mosque was infiltrated by an FBI agent. Uh (laughs) That's a very... (laughs) strange thing to to anyways um but also i feel like an emotional truth is uh, a truth about the emotions it's weird to say that you had an emotional truth about a bunch of things that physically happened in the world that didn't actually happen that doesn't seem like in the realm of emotional truth i guess emotionally true but even i don't know yeah that's a weird that's a weird sort of weasel way out of that uh some weasel words there that is how it feels, right? Because it's like, he kind of is, it seems like he's saying, well, it could have happened, 
well, it happened to yeah. other people. But like, right. <laughs> if that's your definition of the truth, like, oh my gosh, like <laughs> you can say anything happened to you at that point, right? And mm-hmm. and I think like when it comes to like actual disinformation, right? Mm. The very best, most successful disinformation feels true when you hear it. It like passes yeah. your lie detector like so easily because it sounds so totally. plausible it lines up with what you would expect right oh, so yeah. I ha- that's that's interesting i hadn't thought of it in that way the like um what if the person is uh, using the exact same tactics but in a direction you are like more opposed to right like obviously both of us are like opposed to islamophobia or whatever mm-hmm. but the idea that someone could use that to stoke islamophobia right because it's emotionally true <laughs> that yeah uh, you know someone threatened me or whatever it would be right (laughs) uh yeah yes yeah uh, if you want to like be uh consistent you do have to worry about you know what happens if the exact same circumstances arose uh around an issue that i uh you know that i'd be worried about people being convinced of exactly and this kind of brings us back to rosenfield's article because she Mm -hmm. puts this minhaj moment in a broader context of literary fabulists right you've got uh, james frey who wrote the best-selling memoir a million little pieces and a bunch of Mm -hmm. that was fabricated Uh, there was jt Leroy, who is a drug addicted trans sex worker but actually was a middle-aged cis woman (laughs) um you've got a real holocaust survivor actually who like really enhanced (laughs) his his memoir uh, Herman Rosenblatt Um, Mm -hmm. and what Rosenfield believes is that like the reaction to Minhaj's fabrications has been very muted compared to Hmm. past revelations like this Um, and that like the person who's pointing out the inconsistencies is much more likely to be the object of scorn uh, as compared to the past right yeah And I'm not sure if I agree with this. I mean, I think the proof will be in the pudding, right? Like, Mm. Yeah, you can put a bet on it. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Maybe we should. Maybe we should gamble. Um, Yeah, does Minhaj still have a career, right? Like, will he really be impacted by this or not? Um, I think will tell us a lot about, like, whether the tide is sort of changing and whether we're all sort of accepting a looser and softer um understanding of of what the truth is totally like it's it maybe it's okay to say that it's okay to lie as long as the lie is like consistent with an ideology that i agree with exactly something like that right (laughs) yes that is something that concerns me is that the left sometimes seems to think that Mm -hmm. only the right is vulnerable to misinformation and disinformation and that the left is much too smart and savvy to fall for disinformation. Mm. But I have, I've seen evidence that this is not true. (laughs) Um, About a year ago when Mm -hmm. there was the uprising in Iran, Mm. I saw this story reposted over and over and over by so many people that I follow. Mm -hmm. And it said that Iran had sentenced 15,000 oh, dissidents yeah. to death. Right. I th- I think uh, that the prime minister posted that and then took yes. it down. I think he was he was caught up in that. <laughs> yeah, Justin Trudeau fell yeah. for it. Justin a Trudeau tweeted about know. it. Yes. <laughs> That's um, wild. It was a hoax. Uh, the letter yeah. was forged 
um, and the true number of people who had been sentenced to death at that time was five. Yeah. But (laughs) in the moment of Mm. this really horrific repression that really was happening in Iran at that time, Mm -hmm. it just felt true to people. And so it spread and spread and spread all the way to the prime minister's office without being caught right totally that's concerning it it is concerning and i I feel like part of it too is like if um if it's the sort of thing you might get into like a debate or argument like a it's you know in a topic you might have to defend your opinion on um you want to be on solid ground and be able to pull on real examples (laughs) and and people putting out fake examples that can be easily dismissed uh hurts that ability right like i'm I'm sure there are people who have seen this guy's stand-up routine and if they had to reach in their mind for an example of like islamophobia that happened in modern day they would reach to the story that they heard uh told in that comedy special mm-hmm. and it sucks for that person <laughs> if they run into someone who disagrees uh and can be like yeah that didn't happen uh that's not good (laughs) you you want to have uh i don't know it matters whether things are true or not (laughs) absolutely and honestly like i've looked at a number of of sort of you know trauma hoaxers or whatever you want to call (laughs) them like people who say a hate crime happened to them but it didn't or they exaggerated about it and so often they say or people defend them by saying well, it could have happened, or, well, these things do happen, or, oh, I wanted right. to draw attention to the fact that this happens. But it does not help to <laughs> pretend that you got hate crimed when you didn't. <laughs> this does not help the cause of addressing no. bigotry. No, totally. And, and I feel like, I don't know, I was. it made me think, like, what, what drives this sort of thing? And it, I wonder how much of it is that people want to hear these stories because they want to feel like they're you know not looking away right they're looking at the problem they're confronting it or whatever um but they also want like charming handsome beautiful people who can tell the story in an entertaining way to be that messenger yeah right like the reason that it's um because i don't know like the, the ideal thing here wouldn't be that none of these stories get told it would be that they get told by the people who it's actually happening to <laughs> exactly uh but those people might not be as charming and handsome as the, the messengers we get, right? <laughs> and yeah. it's like those same people who feel drawn to consume this kind of media, uh, you know, how far are they willing to go? <laughs> right? Are yeah. they, will they ask like an actual, like there are, there are homeless people you could ask if you want stories about what it's like to be homeless, but would they rather watch like a TikTok by a, a beautiful person who used to be homeless <laughs> or exactly. so they say right yeah absolutely and i think that's part of what rosenfield gets at right is like the betrayal totally. that we feel when a when a memoir turns out to be fake is that like memoirs sort of allow us to read sometimes these really salacious possibly yeah. violent or sensational things but we feel like we're doing it for the right reasons we're educating ourselves right right but as soon as we find out that it's fiction it's, it's kind of yeah. trashy all of a sudden, right? Oh, totally. That, yeah, it's just like exploitation like, cinema or something. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that That's just 
picking up a dirty novel at the used bookstore, right? Which yeah. is like often a different crowd and, and people feel differently about themselves than, than the memoir totally. readers. Totally. You, you feel know? like, yeah, you could like feel like a good, you know, like your English teacher would be proud of you for reading a memoir. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, um, I, I'm curious if you, if you're that, if you consume that kind of media, like, is that something you enjoy? Like mm. the, you know, feeling bad where you read something that makes you feel bad, but about something that you feel good to feel bad about. Oh, that's interesting. I mean, I, I think I, I yeah. love it all. Like I love oh, okay. <laughs> true crime, dirty, gritty, yeah. wild stuff. <laughs> um, I've been listening to a series on Coco Berthman, who is this woman mm-hmm. who claimed that she had been sex trafficked for the first 15 years of her life by her mother. Um, oh, wow. And I I won't give away <laughs> the story, but there's, right. uh, <laughs> you can check it out. Um, there are twists. So, yeah, yeah. So I, I have like... Um, I don't have standards around that. Like I, lo- I also mm-hmm. love memoirs, you know, but... Totally. Um, I think, and once in a while, like I find the, the child misery ones are particularly mm. like somewhat icky to me, you know, like, yeah. um, like stories, like basically torture porn about children <laughs> where yeah. you have like you the covers, like that? <laughs> uh, that's, that's, yeah, that's not really my thing. Um, yeah. but yeah, yeah, I, I kind of love, uh, yeah, I, I have no, um, qualms about sensational stuff yeah it's interesting um, i feel like you're not mentioning much the like righteousness of any of it it sounds like oh, you're mostly no. just in it for the thrills <laughs> i think it's super entertaining you know i think yeah. um how exploitative it is can vary um but mm-hmm. i i i kind of find that often there's like a self-righteousness where they're like we're telling this to raise awareness oh, totally. and yeah. i'm like <laughs> partially sure but <laughs> let's be honest like you yeah, know you're, you might be telling it to sell ads on your podcast <laughs> <laughs> exactly like yeah. is the first reason that people consume true crime to raise awareness about crime like i, I think that's not oh, true <laughs> yeah i think it's i think that is something pe- they say to take the edge off a bit <laughs> <laughs> yeah exactly and that's actually i do depart a bit from rosenfield here because near mm. the end of her article she compares minhaj to this tiktoker who faked cancer to solicit donations online right and because mm. i've consumed a lot of true crime about people like cancer scammers Mm -hmm. um i think that that's like a different thing like a lot of times Mm. people who are willing to do a cancer scam they lie and lie and lie for years and they lie to get attention and oh my gosh they have they're pregnant or they have a pregnancy loss like they Hmm. create like an incredible amount of just chaos and stress and distress in all of the people that encounter them and that doesn't sound like minhaj to me i think Minhaj yeah. is a lot more like narrow and 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 calculated in like what his public persona yeah. is, right? Totally. Um, so yeah, I think I feel like we yeah. we laughed at the term before, but it sounds like the TikTok scammers are not emotionally true. They're no. fully <laughs> untrue in every single way, right? <laughs> exactly, exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I think like yeah, the yeah you can't you can't put Minhaj in the same category as as a cancer grifter, but mm. I think it's still I think. The whole thing has brought up some really interesting questions about, like, uh, yeah, truth and um, and comedy. And uh, I guess the mm. last thing I would say on this is that I'm, I'm reading Naomi Klein's latest book, Doppelganger, right now. 
Hmm. And she was talking about how her university students, like for a lot of them, their first exercise in, in personal branding is writing an application essay for university, right? Oh, okay. And so often it asks them <laughs> implicitly to create a narrative of hardship, right? Yeah, totally. And that, that really stuck with me that it's like, there are so many pressures from so many different directions that incentivize us to heighten and intensify our worst moments, mm. if not make mm. up, make them up altogether. And most of us don't go as far as like totally fabricating something, but like there, there really is like we, we are in a moment where there are benefits to talking about your hardships, right? Right. Yeah. Your, um, your college essay that just says like, Every, you know, my life's been pretty good. I'm captain of the soccer team is probably yeah. not what people are looking for. <laughs> my parents love me and I'm mm -hmm. just really well adjusted. Yeah. No, that's not like how, <laughs> how you yeah. write a college essay, e right? Even though you'd hope that that would be the most common story of them all. You'd hope you that would that hope right. so. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. But I think, you know, it, that's the thing when incentives change like we can't be altogether surprised when a very very small minority of people take advantage of that right totally. like it's no, really always, yeah. rare to pretend that you're indigenous but uh -huh. some people do that because totally. in very small areas like arts and culture and academia there is a benefit to doing that yeah totally i i think it's whenever there's like a I guess I kind of think of it in terms of markets sometime, right? Where if there's demand um, and someone supplies the demanded item, it's so easy to to just be mad at the supplier. But the demand, uh, if there wasn't demand, probably no one would supply, right? <laughs> it's exactly. Like, um, there's like this demand for these like sentimental memoir comedy specials about hardship. Uh, and if you're trying to make it in comedy, you might want to try and meet that demand. And, uh, yeah. <laughs> it's, uh, yeah, I mean, he's, he's been very successful. He's very successful. So I, I don't know. <laughs> it's hard to, yeah. you know, he, maybe he did everything right. Yeah. I mean, I think right up until before that article came out. Absolutely. You yeah. know? So <laughs> does, does everything change when we have this new lens to, to look back on it? It's, it's an Do interesting question. Okay, and another one more interesting question for this section. Do you, what what's your feel on should it change? Hmm. Like like for this specific case, if he's still on the air, you know, a couple of years down the line, still as successful as ever, would mm -hmm. you kind of see that as like a failure of something, or would that be fine? <laughs> I mean, I think I feel kind of neutral on it. I think that it's sort of. Mm like up to his audience and up to the general public to see totally. like whether this falls in to you know an acceptable set of behaviors or not you know and right, and right. you're if, more interested not not no dog in the fight just interested to see what happens and what uh that might mean about things in general yeah yeah exactly like if people hmm. are like listen he spread awareness like he's he's done a great job of that like we stand mm -hmm. behind him then well there you go there's there's the public's answer you know yeah. um and if people are like wow this guy's a liar then <laughs> that'll that'll also be interesting what do you think do you have do you have a prediction you don't have to put down a dollar but <laughs> do you think that this that he will experience fallout from this 
Uh, no, I think he'll be fine. I I mean, I am not very familiar with him, but what I've seen, he seems like a very talented like speaker. He seems engaging in all of that. And uh, I don't know. I bet he'll just have one good monologue where he addresses it and move on. <laughs> there you go. I don't know. Yeah, that would, be, that would be my guess. I don't know how much I'd wager on that, but <laughs> probably like 20 bucks, not 20 100. Bucks. <laughs> <laughs> right on. Yeah, maybe he can pivot. Maybe he can, yeah, turn this into an authenticity moment. <laughs> totally. Very possible. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, uh, we, we missed a week, so we actually have two Kier here articles to catch up on. Mm -hmm. uh the first or more recent one uh entitled racial roles in social justice culture which is based on a talk i've seen you give a couple times now and uh Mm -hmm. i think it's a great piece Uh, i think anyone listening should probably read it just because uh if you're listening you're probably a fan of kier and uh i think this is a pretty good like uh origin story or part of the origin story at least for uh Mm -hmm. sort of how how you got to where you are in politics right now uh yeah totally good piece it was weird to read instead of uh watch you present it (laughs) yeah yeah so uh the yeah the piece that i published was originally a talk that i gave in portland and then in vancouver Mm -hmm. bc um as part of the fucking canceled podcast tour and Mm -hmm. um yeah it was one that i was nervous to give um (laughs) Which was interesting because I knew that I would be talking to uh, leftists who were some degree of skeptical about identitarianism mm-hmm. and orthodoxy on the left. Um, but I still felt like, oh, maybe this is going to be a step <laughs> too far because I really talked about the racial roles that uh, pop up uh, in within social justice culture. Um, Because I feel like one of the main criticisms that you get Mm. (laughs) if you're a white person critiquing the orthodoxy of social justice culture is that, well, you don't get it because you're white, you know. Um, But I Mm. strongly believe that, like, the racial roles that are available to people of color are also, like, super narrow and, like, don't allow for a full human expression either. Um, and so that's sort of what I got into. And what was really interesting was that, like, after both talks, like, I I talked to people who that really resonated with, you know? Um, yeah. Yeah. No, totally. I mean, I was I was there at the Portland show, and you were pretty much surrounded until, like, the sun was well down. And, ever, <laughs> like, <laughs> ever, like, it seemed like uh, it really resonated with a lot of people. Yeah. Uh, and it's it yeah i could also see why you would be nervous going up there though because like just the idea of a white person giving a talk on race that isn't like um uh presented with like guilt or shame <laughs> is uh yeah, it's something. It's something to be nervous about. I, I could understand that. <laughs> yeah, it's it's not a popular choice, uh, perhaps no. <laughs> in, in this this year of our Lord twenty twenty three. Um, but mm-hmm. yeah, um, it did feel right, and and that's that's what's interesting, right? Is when you want to speak or write on something, and you're like, I know this is real, and I know that other people have right. experienced it, right? But 
it there's like a taboo to it that um really like makes your head spin before you kind of get it out yeah totally but it's not like i I know we get into it a lot the idea of like difference between like material versus like ideological stuff um and you give you giving a talk is uh not going to materially hurt anyone in any way Mm-hmm. Right, like there's no, you're, there's you're not doing any actual physical or financial harm to anyone <laughs> by giving a talk. But if you're, you know, a believer in certain ideologies, you could be doing a ton of damage in other harder to measure ways. Right? Exactly, <laughs> the more the more metaphysical realm for sure. Yes, yeah, um, yeah. And there actually even was a tweet before the Vancouver show that was like oh like it's all white people talking blah blah uh-huh. uh, and right. it's interesting <laughs> it well wasn't. first it think. wasn't <laughs> <laughs> that's the first thing it's like <laughs> tara mcgowan ross is Mi'kmaq, and then we also mm-hmm. had uh, an sfu department uh head uh or someone standing in uh for the head yep. who uh was a woman of color as well um but mm-hmm. i decided to just not respond to that tweet because i was like I'm not getting down to that level. Like if you really do feel that an event um, that is only white people speaking should just never happen. Like I just, Mm -hmm. I don't really want to get into that with you. And and it's probably just not the right fit. Like, Stay yeah. home. You don't have you to come. You probably wouldn't like it. <laughs> you probably wouldn't like it. Um, yeah. So yeah. So that was that was interesting. And and I just yeah. If people are gonna you know, not even bother to like look into the people that they've decided are white. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, they're kind of not even um, living up to their own standards. Um, yeah. But uh, yeah, there's this uh, YouTuber I wanted to mention, uh, Kimmy Katiti, and um, mm-hmm. she uh, commented under the essay, which I was happy to see because she uh, is an interdisciplinary artist uh, from Kampala, Uganda, who mm-hmm. now lives and works in Los Angeles. And uh, she put out a video called This is How I Escaped the Cult of Wokeness, um, hmm. which now has, I think, like half a million views on it. Um, wow. And that was like one of the first people of color that I saw kind of speaking out about like the burden mm. of having like that orthodoxy in in your mind and walking around like feeling as if everyone hated you and and interpreting every little gesture like someone didn't open the door for you going into the grocery store that that person hates you and and hates your blackness and all this you know and and just that that was so devastating like so devastating that it it made it almost impossible for her to like Mm. live her life at a very basic level of functioning you know um and just just caused so 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 much misery um and the video is really interesting because for her she went to high school i think it was in south africa and learned Mm -hmm. about desmond tutu and how Mm. much he prioritized forgiveness and how he found forgiveness to be a crucial piece in moving forward as a nation you know um, and so that was really something that Kimmy drew on as she was sort of like making her way out of wokeness. Um, 
And hmm. yeah, that just really, that's sort of what got the gears turning for me a number of years ago, thinking like, well, I know it sucks to be a white person in social justice culture. <laughs> right. Yeah. Firsthand about that. <laughs> yeah. But like, yeah, it's also, there are serious sort of expectations of mm-hmm. like, you know, kind of wearing your hardship on your sleeve um, and kind of connecting with your culture in a public way and like, you know, being right, yeah. outgoing and like just there there are a lot of expectations um, yeah. on, placed on people of color as well. Yeah. And I feel like there's also just the just the, the worldview sort of that, you know, everyone is secretly a white supremacist or whatever. Um, just that would weigh on you a lot, right? It's the terrible. That, yeah. Right, that you consume media that's constantly telling you that everyone has secret biases against you that they're enacting in everything they do or whatever. That would make, uh, like, if you if you truly like internalize that, I think that would make uh, everything in life hard because uh, it would it would just make life hard to navigate and it would make lots of problems like feel like impossible to deal with because they're like so out of your control right because as far as far as you understand it and as far as you're being told <laughs> uh it is out of your control right and there's nothing uh you know it's that's just the way of the world kind of exactly no you're just you're gonna have fewer opportunities you're gonna have less kindness fewer connections mm-hmm. like your life is going to be harder forever um you know and yeah there's another video of Kimmy's where she talks about um, starting to skateboard in Los Angeles and mm. that she kind of, because of the friends that she had and the circle she was in, she kind of had a lot of fear and dread of how she would be treated by the skateboarders at the parks right. um, being there as a black woman and that she got treated well, like she got treated right. well really consistently you know and and um yeah. like that was sort of a real kind of light bulb moment for her where she was like oh like the reality does not match like what i mm. what i expected and she even had friends who were trying to like bring her back you know kind of saying like right. no no like it is that bad totally. and she was like yeah yeah like what? What, were, like what what were the microaggressions while you were skateboarding or whatever yeah, exactly and like yeah. they just like couldn't hmm. believe that like that there weren't any that that she just had a nice time you know yeah um, totally yeah i think that i think that's an important piece of life maybe <laughs> it's just the idea that like isolation can be a pretty big problem in a lot of ways like i, I think most like relationship abuse happens in relationships that are uh, like isolated either you know mm-hmm. from their community entirely or like in a very small community um, and similarly just like it's when you only interact with like people in some sort of in-group um, it's so easy to sort of get stuck in one way of thinking about things that everyone else in your group agrees with but that like the broader world uh, doesn't agree with or doesn't even like reflect uh so yeah, it seems important, like both, both uh, like you mentioned it in your talk, right? That a big part of your progress out of that culture was making friends who weren't part of the culture, mm-hmm. right? Just so you had some people you could talk to and not worry about all this stuff, <laughs> right? It's sort of like an escape patch. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Like I also linked at, 
in that um, essay to the interview I did on the fucking canceled podcast. Uh, mm-hmm. And yeah, in there, like, I really talk about how, like, part of my leaving social justice culture was, like, building myself a new life to move into. Um, right. Because, yeah, it's like if all of your friends are in the subculture and, like, you know, maybe you even mm-hmm. work a job, like, if you were a social worker or a therapist or in certain lines of work, like, it's going to be in your workplace as well. It's like, how do you even begin to, you know, kind of disentangle yourself? And, yeah, it's like go play mm-hmm. street hockey right like totally join the bird watching group <laughs> yeah. uh like go to the dog park if you have a dog there's always the people at the park, park. <laughs> exactly like yeah. there are so many people out there that are not in this and a lot of them are really nice <laughs> totally yeah <laughs> i know? think when i think when you're in in this like a small group like that it can you it can start to feel like that actually is the whole world that like there isn't like a different group of people who never talk about this stuff, right? That everyone's always talking about it. Uh, but that's never the case. <laughs> There's yeah. totally people where like the Venn diagrams of what they discuss and what you discuss don't overlap at all, right? Who live in the totally different uh, like media landscape and all of that. And uh, mm-hmm. it's good sometimes to reach out across those lines and just see, you know, what it's like over there. Is it better? Is it worse? Would I prefer it? <laughs> gotta stay flexible i think i think that's yeah you gotta stay flexible yeah and like isolating oneself you know and thinking like oh i can only be friends with people that you know are of this identity or have this in common with me like that's Mm. really i think that's ultimately really detrimental um and that feels like it it might even be like a like a warning sign (laughs) if you're ever like in a group that is is hostile to reaching outside of the group uh, yeah, I'd, I'd be worried about getting involved with any group that like has that sort of, uh, you know, if you're not with us, you're with them kind of. Uh, yeah, framing. exactly. Well, like Kimmy refers to wokeness as a cult and many other people do, too. I don't. Hmm. I have mixed feelings about it, but <laughs> I can also understand it. Right. Because sure. like, yeah, you kind of are encouraged to like <laughs> cut off family members. And like there there are sort of a number of like kind of socially isolating behaviors that are encouraged if people aren't with you. Right. Yep. If they're not like in the subculture with you and and that's totally. that's something that's commonly totally. happening with like religious converts as well right yeah yeah that is definitely part of being a cult is all that stuff <laughs> yeah exactly exactly <laughs> so i'm glad i'm out i'm glad kimmy's out and uh totally. yeah here we well, are <laughs> and, and glad you're uh reading books that maybe you would have been uh afraid to read in that period <laughs> Yes. Uh, yeah, the other article you published since the last episode was uh, a book review of a book called How Elites Ate the Social Justice Movement uh, by Frederick de Boer. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yeah, is it is this the sort of book that you think you wouldn't have read or even touched during a certain uh, period? Oh, man. I mean, I think the title would have been really enticing to me Mm. um but yeah i might have i probably would have looked him up and seen if he was like on the good list or the bad list right right Um, because you yeah you could yeah with a title like that maybe it meant like uh 
that we need even more social justice movement or something like that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And yeah. actually, I ordered this book in from uh, through Spartacus Books, which is the local anarchist info shop, okay. and uh, they don't have it on their shelves. I needed to order it in. Oh, so that's the other thing that I just <laughs> noticed. Right, is that like mm-hmm. that's where I went to get a lot of my books. So it it's not even there. Oh, right, <laughs> right. You might not have even seen that it existed because yeah, even even though it's like out. directly about the sort of thing you were into uh it's like from the wrong perspective so uh, yeah the shop that you would away. think would have it does not have it yeah. <laughs> so interesting <laughs> yeah yeah but um in it like freddie DeBoer really argues for sort of like a class first um leftism which Mm -hmm. he differentiates from a class reductionist leftism, right? Which, um, like, doesn't value intersectionality and maybe thinks that things like sexism and uh, homophobia or ableism uh, are Mm. less important than class or that would, they would, like, fall away if we dealt with class. So he's, that's class reductionism. And he's saying class first activism or leftism mm-hmm. is really much more about like building a broad-based coalition across many differences, you know, that's based around right. our like economic uh, interests uh, of the vast majority of people, mm-hmm. right? Working class people, middle class people. Um, and that, that gives us the ability to do all sorts of things to push for universal mm. programs that benefit everyone, um, as well as like tackling, uh, specific issues like, uh, black maternal mortality, for example. Um, if you, mm. if you have a broad right. coalition of people, you have the numbers to be like, we need to get this solved. Right. Right. Totally. And I think the example you mentioned for around the black maternal mortality was, uh, the idea that like a program like Medicare for all does help with that issue, even though Mm -hmm. it's not like targeted at that issue. Right. And you could, it would be easier to build like a broad coalition for Medicare for all than like a target, a program targeted specifically at like a minority of the population. Yeah. And once you have like a universal healthcare system, like then like the government is responsible for healthcare. So then you can say, Hey, look Mm -hmm. government, like we need to address this inequality, you know? Um, so yeah, I, I thought it was, uh, a fairly convincing read. Um, Hmm. yeah. And it kind of got into kind of recent social movements and, and how they haven't been very successful at like, Mm. producing like permanent material change um which i think is worth talking about (laughs) yeah it seems it seems right up your alley just your kind of book i think Mm -hmm. (laughs) there was one part that uh, uh, made me curious just probably just because it was the part with numbers in it and i like numbers Mm -hmm. uh about uh the non-profit sector uh Mm -hmm. apparently the third largest employer in the united states in 2016 ahead of finance retail and food service mm-hmm. uh which i did not know and i i did double check and because part of me was like well third largest employer sector uh felt a bit like weasel wordy kind of right because it's like depends right. on how you divide up the sectors <laughs> mm-hmm. and and nonprofit seems like a sort of weird uh categorization but i did i checked into it and apparently uh it's about 10 percent of the workforce 
works for a yeah, nonprofit. That's which really is big. Bigger than I expected, for sure. <laughs> yeah, and Freddie DeBoer does get into that a little bit. He says that like, mm. you know, certain things that we wouldn't think of as nonprofits fall into that category, right? Like uh, volunteer right. fire departments, for example. So totally. yeah, some of that ten percent is not like your green pieces or <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's not <laughs> all like you. not all activism. <laughs> Uh, yeah sort of yeah thing. exactly but, exactly but, but it's still, still a significant sector in the country yeah. yeah okay and and i thought that was interesting and some new information i love new information uh but then the, you do go on to say that it like made you gave you like a new perspective on the industry maybe like a, a more negative one was the impression i got mm-hmm. um which i was curious about because of the two of us if i had to pick who prefers the profit motive it would be me <laughs> and i think of you as someone who's like ah oh, profit motive uh, messes up a lot of things uh but in the nonprofit, uh i guess that comes with its own set of problems or a similar set of problems well yeah because I, I think it sort of ends up being like this third arm right because you have like publicly mm. owned and operated um companies mm. or, or institutions you have privately owned ones um and then yeah you have like nonprofits who like like you said they're not motivated by the profit margin um mm. so that that seems beneficial um and they can certainly provide services i mean here in canada like we rely on nonprofits to do a lot of things nonprofits right, right. like the food banks yeah. right yeah. all food banks yeah <laughs> there's no government uh direct involvement that i know of in in any um food bank in canada so that's all done Hmm. by nonprofits. um many uh shelters and uh, other service providers uh for homeless and low-income people um uh, that's all falls under nonprofits a lot of the time and um a friend of mine did mention that like there are significant differences between the sector in uh, canada and the u.s which i'd I'd like to learn Mm -hmm. more about um, but the, the direction that Freddie DeBoer goes in is basically that like nonprofits do a couple of things to social movements. One of the things mm-hmm. they do is they hire a lot of the most passionate, smartest, uh, you know, community organizers who are looking right. to make change. Um, they also, and, and I think the finances are interesting, right? Because a lot of people yeah. donate to nonprofits so that they don't have to pay taxes. So right. that money is money that's being diverted from taxes, which is how we provide public services. Right. Um, and then basically that they sort of have like a pacifying force, right? That that nonprofits mm. are never going to like kind of challenge the government in any sort of like fundamental way um, hmm. because of sort of like the the limitations. First of all, like they, mm-hmm. they want to continue to exist, right? That's sure. true yeah. for almost any organization that, and, and we see that, that like nonprofits, you know, uh, a nonprofit that existed to like eradicate uh, polio, for example, usually that won't just cease to exist. It will like right. transform into something else once mm-hmm. polio is eradicated. Because right, you don't want to fire everyone for succeeding. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Yeah. So like, you know, I it's I don't mean to sound conspiratorial, 
Hmm. Um, it's not like, oh yeah, the, the food banks want to keep people hungry, you know, but (laughs) they, for them to continue to exist, like the problem that they help solve can't disappear. Um, and so it's kind of just that there are like, there's a bit of a conflict of interest there when it comes Hmm. to like change that is like at a significant enough level to like transform like something like how we deal with food security in canada interesting so it's sort of like a they're like stopgap measures sort of that you would hope uh that eventually the government would get around to like solving the deeper problem Uh, right exactly yeah okay okay Uh, that makes sense to me as i was like does Kira want all these things to be for profit? But you're like, no, it should all be the state. I should have guessed that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I definitely, totally yeah. I believe in like the decommodification of public, like public goods, things that people like need to survive. Mm. Um, and yeah, so I think, and and as an activist, you know, I've been involved in like nonprofits and also grassroots uh, groups. Mm-hmm. And the thing is, is like grassroots groups like have no resources, right? We have no money. We have yeah. no like supplies or anything so usually those grassroots groups have to pair with nonprofits in order to access right. either resources <laughs> funding yeah, yeah logistical support whatever and mm-hmm. almost always that support also requires the grassroots group <laughs> mm-hmm. to tame things down right to not kind right. of engage in things that might be like in a legal gray area or you know like even like a lot of Mm. direct action uh would not necessarily be supported by a nonprofit um, that wants to like have a really good relationship with you know um um, the government uh and so Mm. i definitely have sort of noticed like that that relationship tends to like kind of take the teeth out of Mm grassroots groups that sort of have larger more ambitious demands of the government that's very interesting yeah yeah i could uh, that totally makes sense i think uh yeah i i <laughs> in some ways i i like that there are um like facets of society that moderate the the more extreme uh ideologies or whatever you want to call them that uh yeah some groups have it and not necessarily a bad thing but uh i don't know it's one of those things where it's like it would be great if you could not do that but only to the issues that i'm in favor of and still do that to things that i don't like (laughs) yes yeah (laughs) yes yes yeah intense and ambitious as you want around the things i support and then make sure that you cut off all supplies to the people that are doing the things i don't like exactly exactly that'd be great (laughs) (laughs) that's what's so interesting about like so many questions around structure and policy and like what jurisdiction things should fall under is it's like you really do have to think like okay what happens when the other guys get into power totally yeah no in in countries like ours it's like we it's it's like a a very institution-based system and who is at the head of the institution changes based on elections Mm -hmm. and uh yeah so it's like any power exercised by your side can be exercised against you later if you lose an election right and so it's exactly it's like yeah it would be great if uh you know, a government could more easily maneuver and do big changes if it's the government you like. <laughs> but in some ways, it's like I, I kind of prefer a, a slower moving system 
that has more checks and balances just because I know sometimes whoever's running the thing uh, would want to wreak tremendous havoc. And uh, in those mm-hmm. cases, I'd like whatever checks and balances we can get. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, that type of thing reminds me of like, I was kind of surprised around the um, trucker convoy. I wasn't yeah. surprised that most people mm. around me were not supportive of it. But what I yeah. was surprised is that there were a lot of people who wanted the government to like crack down hard. Yeah. You know, no, I, I remember seeing those headlines. Uh, I, maybe we should give context. There was this like anti-vax convoy that drove across Canada and then like occupied our capital, Ottawa, for like several weeks and like yes. shut down all of the all of the you know downtown core city blocks and through like block parties and stuff yeah and i think it's Uh, fair to say that like there definitely were like extremists and conspiracy theorists involved and then i think there were also people that had a lot of frustration and anger about you know the health restrictions and how they've been affected by them yes and and then the government like shut down the whole protest and arrested a bunch of people um and froze tons of bank accounts bank accounts yeah Mm -hmm. and and I mean, and now there's been like uh, investigations into whether or not that was, I, I think it was they invoked the Emergencies Act, which had never yes. before been used for shutting down a protest. And yeah, that made my tummy feel weird because <laughs> mm-hmm. it was like, okay, I mean, this does seem like a problem. You need to have your capital, like the roads need to be open, I guess. But uh, yeah, I don't know. Giving that precedent that like if there's a big enough protest that uh, is causing enough trouble, you can like get the rcmp to shut it down Mm -hmm. uh feels weird yeah i don't i don't love it (laughs) yeah i was very surprised that i didn't see more leftists being like uh like we should be concerned about the (laughs) invoking of the emergencies act Uh because who is usually in the streets who is usually (laughs) up against the police right totally yeah it's it's uh yeah it feels like it sort of connects to earlier like the I don't know just like the idea of like the truth mattering but in a, a different sense of like that it matters uh like not just what's immediately happening but like what it means for uh like the rules and regulations that we all live under <laughs> yeah that it's like you can't you can't just like read it at face value uh there's like implications to absolutely things and you know if, whether it's like a white lie in a comedy set or like shutting down a protest that everybody hates uh <laughs> there could be more more going on <laughs> yeah exactly kind of want to follow follow things to their logical conclusion to really Don't kind know. of try and understand what their effects are be so that you can bet on it and get rich quick <laughs> there we eh? go which which does transition us to liam's quiz Ooh, <laughs> you don't time. have to bet any money but uh it also has to do with the transfer of power to a ruler you might not like as much because mm. uh, there is a, a betting market out of the united kingdom uh that bets very heavily on u.s presidential elections oh wow uh, it's called betfair and so far for the 2024 race there's been about seven million dollars bet uh to determine uh, the prices and the odds for uh, a bunch of presidential candidates down oh south. Oh my gosh. Okay, okay. <laughs> so I'm looking for the top four most likely next presidents, according to this betting market. 
Hmm. Uh, and if you want to guess a rough percent chance that you think each of them has, uh, go ahead. <laughs> okay, I'm going to say Trump, Biden, uh-huh. Gavin Newsom, uh-huh. and... <laughs> I'm I'm I think I'm gonna have to say oh man, I kind of I'm I'm feeling caught between um mm, yeah, RFK Jr. Uh-huh. <laughs> and uh DeSantis. Okay. You got the top three. All okay. right. And okay. the order of the top three, right. Uh, you I, yeah. Trump is at thirty five percent. Uh Biden's at thirty three. Newsom is at seven percent. Ooh. Which I thought was a little surprising because, like, he's not running for president. But right. I guess I feel like they're pricing in maybe the chance of Biden passing away before the election and someone needing to step out, up to the plate. I think mm-hmm. maybe that's where he gets his 7%. <laughs> uh, and then you missed number four. Uh, Kennedy is at number five. And then it's Haley and then DeSantis. Okay. Uh, <laughs> is it no. uh, Ramaswamy? Ramaswamy's number nine with two percent. Oh my gosh! Who is it? <laughs> it's a wild. It's I, is it part of Marianne why, Williamson? Nope. Oh part of why gosh. I like this is that it's like I do find this stuff interesting, but it's also like it's got some silliness to it. Uh, <laughs> should I spoil it, or you want to? I mean, I mean, I think I'm out of guesses. I can't think. Okay, of number else. four, according to the. Nate Silver talks about the betting markets and he always calls this the Scottish teenagers. (laughs) According to the Scottish teenagers, the fourth most likely next president of the United States is Michelle Obama. (laughs) Okay. 5%. (laughs) All right. A bit of a wild card. I I would be surprised. But I think think she's just tremendously well-liked. I think she polls really well. So... I think she I but she's got a poll like so much above Kamala Harris. Like poor Kamala I think Harris. She does. Yeah, uh. I know. She's not she is uh she's I mean, a number eight actually. She's above Ramaswamy, according oh, to the okay. Scottish Deans at two percent. All right. And All Elizabeth right. Warren also makes the list at one percent. What about Bernie? Is Bernie just no, gone? No Bernie. No Bernie. I mean he might be in the other category with a four point five percent, but he's not not in the top ten, unfortunately. Jeez. For you socialists. <laughs> <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Well, there you go. That's what a betting market results in. <laughs> there we go. Michelle Obama, 2024. Yeah, 2024. <laughs> <laughs> well, if you we'll th- have if to you get think ready that, for that. If you think that's going to happen, you can turn your money into 20 times the amount of money by betting it right now. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds totally real and mm-hmm. not at all like a bit of a scam. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it is real, but I think part of it is also just like, I've, have you ever heard the term wish casting? Where it's like no. kind of forecasting, but kind of just what you're wishing for? <laughs> That's what Obama strikes me as. It's just people being like, oh, it'd be cool if it was Michelle Obama. <laughs> and then just... <laughs> Betting some on that just because it would be cool. <laughs> Why not? <laughs> yeah, you need a lot, a lot more money in the market before that sort of stuff falls out of it. Yeah, absolutely. Well, um, I guess I'm rooting for Michelle. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I got my money on Diane Feinstein for sure. <laughs> I, I have some terrible news. <laughs> <laughs> Well, this has been Hot Take Think Tank.
Until next time.